bad of a day do you have to have that Batman ignores you? Man, I love those guys. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, it's incredible to me how true and practical your truths are, your word is, and it frees us and it gives us strength and it helps us to overcome even when we've had those bad days, those moments where everything seems to turn against us. And I pray right now, Lord, we would grab hold of how incredible it is to live life with you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to share with you today what we're about to get into. And, and, and it may be more excited than when even I walked into 9 a.m. And here's why. I got a chance to talk to a couple people who these, these truths we're about to look at impacted their life in such a way that they broke a cycle of violence. They broke a cycle of abuse. They broke free from what we might call a family curse. Now, why? Because they chose to take the verses we're about to look at to heart. If you haven't been with us, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with eight times using a word, makirios, which we translate blessed. 
The actual translation of that word is to be supremely happy. And the Lord looks at you and says, I want the kingdom of God in your life. I want God's comfort in your life. I want you to experience a relationship with me so that you might understand freedom from a world that very often acts in ways we wish it wouldn't, but also that you would know a truth that would set you free, that you would come to a life that's abundant, that you would come to live the life you were meant to live. And when things even turn against you, I want to share with you things that overcome the world. That's what I want you to grab a hold of. God loves you and me so much. He wants you to be happy. I mean, not every single moment, but the overall arcing uh, uh, attitude of our life of one of feeling supremely blessed and happy. And these words are true. And like I said, a couple of families took the time to tell me after last service, oh, they're so true. They're so true. God wants you to overcome. So he tells you, don't be given to anger. That's what Jesus said. He goes, don't be given to anger. Don't be given to demeaning uh, others and insulting others. Then he says, don't be caught up in lust and don't be caught up in selfishness. Be someone who's true to your word. But then he's about to tell us what to do when people act other than that. What happens when you have an enemy? What happens when you have someone who wants to be abusive? Well, Matthew chapter five, I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation because I really like the way it says it. Listen to what it says. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who borrow. He goes on to say this. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives the sunlight both to the evil and to the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward have you for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do the same. If you are kind only to your friends. How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's interesting that in the New Living Translation, three times, rather than ending the Syrian sentence with a period, they end it with an exclamation point. Now, why is that a big deal? It's because this kind of life is an exclamation point kind of life. It's not just period. It's not just make it. It's not just get by. It's stand out and stand up and shout out and be excited. Because when you live this kind of life, you are not the victim any longer. You're the victor. You're not the conquered. You're the conqueror. You're not the one caught in despair. You're the one who rises up. A lot of people are afraid when they look at a life like this that what will happen is they'll get walked all over. But that's not the case. The case is no one can make you act any way other than you want to act. And by choosing to overcome evil with good and overcome hate with love and overcome despair with peace and joy, you end up being in control. It's the truth that sets you free. I mean, people are going to come against us at times. The Bible says when someone slaps you, isn't it interesting? He takes for granted. There's going to be someone who does something demeaning and insulting to you. You choose ahead of time to return love. You choose ahead of time to not let them control or dictate or manipulate you. 
You choose ahead of time to be in the control of God and yourself and the Holy Spirit. God says, as you do that, you find yourself set free. So Jesus says, you know the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which we'll dig into in a moment. He says, but I'm telling you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If they go to take something from you that's yours, you know what? Give them more. And if they make you go one mile, you go two. He goes, as you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, it's a whole different way to live. And that kind of living allows the kingdom of God to be embraced in your life in a way you can't imagine. We were talking about how to illustrate this. And so I'm going to talk a lot about movies today. A lot of different movie scenes kind of bring this out. And, and one we got real excited about. And, and then I walked around even asking, uh, uh, mainly guys, I said, do you know the movie The War? And I got to tell you, a ton of guys were like, oh, it, guys in here know the movie The War? Kevin Costner, Elijah Wood, little before puberty. But anyway, uh, uh, you know what is, is in this movie, what happens is Kevin Costner is uh, returning from the Vietnam War. He's a war vet. And he's plagued from the violence he experienced to the point that he's so depressed and so scared and so filled with what he saw that he actually is, just can't sleep at night. He has horrible nightmares. He can't seem to get a grip on reality. He can't see to be the husband and the father he wants to be. He can't hold a job. And, and so he checks himself voluntarily into a mental hospital. And in that hospital, he finds peace. In that hospital, he finds a way to live a different life than anything he had been subjected to. He comes out a new man, a different man, and here's the key, a better man. Now, the problem, though, is, is that's on his record, and so it's difficult to get a job. But his family, in reality, as poor as they are, barely making and scraping by, they have their dad at home. His son, Kevin Costner's son, Elijah Wood, though, has his own war he's fighting. There's some kids that live near them that actually have made themselves his enemies and his brothers and sisters and friends enemies. And so they're, they're literally at battle with each other and fighting constantly. And so this one particular scene happens where they're at a county fair. The mom and the daughter aren't able to be there. So Kevin Costner, even though to them it's an extreme amount of money, and you got to catch that to get this scene. It's a huge amount of money to them. He decides to bless them by bringing home cotton candy, an incredible treat. As he's going to get it, the kids jump Elijah Wood, two of them, and they beat him up. Nobody even breaks up the fight. And so the dad comes back with the cotton candy, is having to throw the kids off. His son gets up wanting to fight more, and he's trying to show his son that's not how to live. And he gets him away, and they're walking to the car with his son bleeding, battered, and bruised. He feels humiliated. And as he's walking to the car, a brother and sister of the two boys that jump him are standing on a porch and they start mocking him, yelling, my brothers beat you up and you're just a cow. And they're yelling every name they can to this kid. And he's looking at him and the dad turns and sees them mocking his son and he walks towards them. And notice what happens. Why did you give him our cotton candy? My mom and my sister's cotton candy. He says, because it looks like they haven't been given nothing in a long time. Think about that. He could have walked up and screamed and yelled at him. He could have thrown the cotton candy in the car and went up and smacked him around. But what did he do? Instead, he gave them something even that had value to them, something incredible. And by the way, if you watch the movie, you see the seeds that he planted there don't immediately take hold, but eventually they give birth to love overcoming hatred, good overcoming evil. That's what God calls us to live like. That's what he calls us to do. And it's revolutionary. 
It's the exclamation kind of life. You know, anybody can return evil for evil. Anybody can strike back. It's the one who has the control in the moment to say, no, you can't make me. You can't make me embrace hatred. You can't make me embrace bitterness. You can't make me get angry and hold a grudge against you. You're not going to be able to do that to me. Why? Because I've learned the truths of Jesus. And they, in the end, are the ones that bring victory. Now, now I know there's a lot of people in this room today, you've been betrayed by somebody. You've been hurt by someone. You've had people let you down. And, and you know, I know I say this. I really know it's true. There are some of you here who have undergone, undergone things that are horrible or hideous. Those aren't just words. I mean, I, like I said, last service. But, but here's where I'm going. When you refuse to embrace it and you don't let that control you, you win. Jesus says that's what happens. You win. Uh, another movie scene we almost showed was in Star Wars. Remember in Star Wars, the emperor's trying to get Luke to cross to the dark side? If you remember the movie, how could he make Luke become part of the dark side? The answer was to get Luke to hate him. So he was screaming at him and cursing at him and about to create amazing destruction. And he wants him to hate. He wants him to hate. Because in hating, he would get him. And now he's got to choose. Am I going to let this man, as horrible as he is, draw me into living and thinking like him? Or am I going to be set free? By the way, I think that illustrates something very true. There's an enemy to your soul that wants to get your soul and draw you over. You and I have a choice to say no. And when we choose Jesus and we choose life with him, then what happens is you find his love. Remember the end of the section we just read says, if you do this, you become true children of the father who causes his son to shine on the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust. Some people would ask, why would God do that? Because you know why they ask that question? Here's it. You might ask that question. If you ask it, it probably tells you your view of God is that he either is this king who's apart from all of us that ought to mete out justice, or, or he's a God who only chooses a select few. But do you know that's not who he is? He's a father that loves every single person. You guys ever have kids act up, and what do you do? You still want the best for them. You still want to reach them. You still want them back. You know, no matter how much your children let you down or how bad their lives turn, You still want to somehow say, oh, don't live like that, but I want to love you. You know that I've watched that happen again and again where parents have sat and I've talked with them and they're crying their eyes out over kids who've gone the wrong direction. You know what? God says, I'm not going to take away the sunshine from them because I want them one day to know my love. God's crying out for that. He moves heaven and earth to reach us at our worst. Uh, Another scene of a movie you almost showed was the movie Gandhi based on the life of Mahatma Gandhi. The movie actually, uh, I don't know about every single scene, but overall portrays something that people sometimes aren't aware of. That Gandhi, when he was trying to free India from Britain's colonial rule, he actually, he actually used the strategy of the Sermon on the Mount. He believed Matthew 5, 6, and 7 could bring about victory. He believed by really truly living that out, people could find freedom. He believed that if he mounted a nonviolent revolution, he could free his people with dignity. And so, you know what he did? Now, many of you know that he ended up mounting this nonviolent revolution that not only caused Britain to allow India to become free, but they flew Gandhi to, to England. They gave him a parade. And when he stood in front of parliament, they gave him a standing ovation that went minute after minute after minute after minute, the man who had just conquered them. 
You know why? When you use these methods, it gives you a victory you can't imagine. There's a scene in the movie Gandhi where Gandhi and E. Stanley Jones are walking on a sidewalk down the streets. At that day and time, native Indians were not allowed to use the sidewalk. It was a very racist system, uh, one of always trying to hold people back. They were to walk in the gutter. He had the audacity to walk with a white man on a sidewalk. And as he's walking along, a group of, of people see it happening and they start forming in a, almost a mini mob waiting for him to attack him. And as they start getting closer, E. Stanley Jones, the Christian missionary, looks at him and says, um, don't you think we ought to turn back? And Gandhi said, no, I think we're just walking on the sidewalk. And then Jones looks at him and says, um, I don't think it's going to go well for us when we get up there. I think they're going to attack you. And Gandhi said, I think they are. And Jones said, well, what are you going to do? And he looks at him and says, what did Jesus say to do? He said, didn't your Lord tell you if he strikes you on the right cheek to turn the other also? And in the movie, Jones says, I think that's a metaphor. (laughs) And Gandhi goes, I think it's true. And he walks up and he stands there and he's not going to be bullied into violence. Here I want to tell you, do you and I believe the words of Jesus are true? Do we believe they're true? Because I can tell you that from my vantage point as a person who's come to know him personally, but also tried to live this out, it is. Later on, Martin Luther King Jr. would would actually, because he was a Christian, go by the Sermon on the Mount, but he was also inspired by Gandhi and this idea of a nonviolent revolution. And what did he do? He ended up causing a group of people who were wrongly and unjustly disenfranchised from our country and not given rights and not allowed to eat wherever they chose to eat or live wherever they chose to live or marry whoever they chose to marry or love. He he caused freedom to come. And and you know what is, is there's something in common that Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. have. And one is they followed the Sermon on the Mount and they believed it would work and it did. There's a second one. Today we call both those men heroes. Those men are heroic. And you know what? You give the Nobel Peace Prize to men like that. You, you acclaim men like that. Anybody can, can respond in violence. You know, you walk up and hit me on the cheek, man, I can start throwing punches too. I, we, I might lose, but I can fight back. You scream and yell at me, I can match your word for word. But what good is that? And who are we when we do that? Because in that moment, what we're doing is acting like the people who are trying to do that to us instead of shining out like Jesus wanted us to. When you and I choose to love instead of hate, we choose to overcome evil with good. We choose, by the way, Jesus said, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him some water. And you know what? I love the next part. I probably shouldn't love the next part. Do you remember what the next part says? In doing so, you're heaping burning coals on their head. I just love that. Okay, I'm not supposed to love it that much. But isn't it true? When someone says that hurtful thing to you, you look and say, oh, man, I'm so sorry for the hurt and pain in your life. I mean, that would make you respond like that. Could I pray for you right now? They're like, oh, and then they get madder. And you're like, oh, man, that makes me want to even pray for you more. And then they get madder. And you're like, now I want to pray. You know, the laugh wasn't, but isn't that true? Someone goes, I'm going to take this from you. You go, oh, can I help you move it and give you more? And they're like, what? Who lives like that? People who know Jesus in reality. 
It changes everything. And that's why Jesus said, of course you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, I want to make this clear. He was talking not about personal action, but a judicial system. He goes, you know that the the courts have the right to mete out an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He says, you know that's true. The law requires it. By the way, the law should do things justly. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But he says that the law, the courts of the land, ought to always only give a measured response to the action that had been perpetrated. So in instance, he said, if you gouge out someone's eye, then they could lose their eye. But you can't take their eye and their tooth. You know, if they knock out the tooth, you can't take a tooth and an eye. You can only take a tooth. He says, you've got to have a measurement. You've got to put an end so evil doesn't escalate. He said, you and I know that's true. The Code of Hammurabi, which was the Babylonian system of justice from 1790 BC, had an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in it, but it was a little bit different. The Code of Hammurabi said this, if you knock out the eye of a gentleman, then your eye shall be taken out. If you knock out the tooth of a gentleman, your tooth shall be forfeited. But if you knock out the eye or the tooth of a poor man, you shall just give a small amount of money. I think everybody sitting in here goes, whoa, that doesn't sound right. By the way, God says it's not right. When he refers to an eye, an eye, and tooth for a tooth, he says it's got to be a fair system of justice for everybody. In Leviticus 24, 17 to 22, it says, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done for him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. Now here's the main verse. There shall be one standard for you, and it shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Did you grab that? He said, I want you to have one system of laws that's fairly enacted to everybody, whether they're a citizen or a non-citizen, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. And by the way, he's also going to say whether they're slave or free. It's very interesting to me. It's very much worth noting. The first time an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is used is Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. And there it talks about if two men are fighting each other and a woman is pregnant and she goes to intercede and she's knocked down and she gives birth, however the child is when it comes out shall be done to the man who hit her. If the child is blinded, you shall blind him. If the child is, has some injury up in him, burn for burn, you shall burn him. If, if he dies, then you take his life. And he says, I want this even for the most innocent to be protected. But then later on in Exodus 21 and verses 26 and 27, it says that you need to protect your slaves. If you have a slave and you harm his eye, you're not only to to restore to him everything that you've done, you're to set him free and, and make sure his whole life is taken care of thereafter. If you knock out his tooth, then you have to actually set him free and you have to provide for him the rest of his life. See, God was saying here, I want this to be just and fair. Then Jesus says something, though. He says, but when it comes to the law, to judgment, that's good. But I'm telling you for you personally, you will rise up. You will live the exclamation point kind of life. You will find freedom if you love instead of hate. And he says, so I'm telling you, you know what? If they slap you on the right, you just turn the other. Don't, don't, don't let them lower you to their, their way of living. 
If they go to take from you, just give it. Don't, don't let them force you into action. And uh, the Lord says, I want you to be the kind of person who knows what it's like to love. Jesus, most all of you know this, was asked a question by an attorney. The attorney said to him, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, well, it's that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And, and that was out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And then he said, but there's a second that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now it's interesting. There he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. Listen to what the verse says in totality. It says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. You shall not be caught up in evil. You shall not be that kind of person. He says, I don't want you to be that way. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 24. But while you're turning there, some years ago, I was uh, uh, in a, uh, a gathering of pastors, and this was at the time, and I don't even know how many of you remember this, that Uganda was ruled by a man named Idi Amin. Idi Amin was a vile uh, a monster of a man. What he did was horrible. And uh, his hatred of Christianity was just off the charts. Uh, he had missionaries actually arrested and killed. He had pastors arrested and tortured. He would have pastors arrested and have them watch their children being tortured before they threw the pastor into prison, wanting them to live out the rest of their days with the horror of what they saw. And uh, in our midst, uh, the speaker that day was a Ugandan pastor who had been smuggled out of the country. And he got up and he shared with us the things that were going on to Christians in that country. And he talked about what God was doing. And even in the midst of the, the horrible evil, God was causing people to come to know him. And then when he got done, man, I mean, we were just like sitting there just stunned by the fact that that kind of evil goes on in the world. And people were forced to live like this. And the man who was leading this particular group got up and said, can we pray for you? And the Ugandan pastor said, yes. And he sat down and the pastor who was leading the proceeding stood up and he began to, to pray that God, that God would have Edomin fall, that God would have Edomin come to justice, that God would have Edomin uh, uh, put to, in, in, in death. And then as he was doing it, all of a sudden, the Ugandan pastor tapped him on the shoulder and he said, no, no, I thought you were going to pray with us. We don't pray for that. We're praying for Idi Amin to come to know Jesus Christ. We're praying for him to submit himself to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We're praying for him to become a brother in Christ so that he might know God's love and go to heaven with us one day. Pray with us. I mean, I know I sat there and the rest of us going, whoa, that's power. That's power. And this guy was not brought over to any kind of evil thought or curse-filled thought at all. Job had that attitude. In Job 31, 29 to 30, it says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No. I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. He said, I wouldn't do that. I just wouldn't do that. He said, there's no way. And so what happened is Job knew the secret of overcoming. Job knew the secret of being completely God's. What we're about to read is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I think it's the funniest story in all the Bible. You may not think so, but we'll see in a minute. What happened is David had, slay, had killed Goliath and now had become a national hero. Saul, who was king, saw him as a threat. 
And the more people rallied behind David and cheered him, the more his celebrity status grew, the more angry Saul became, the more filled with jealousy, the more bitter. And finally, he started doing things against David. His hatred, though, never seemed to work. And finally, it reached a point where he took a spear and tried to kill him. David fled for his life. And then Saul sent men to surround his house and to mock him and to drag him out and to put him to death. And he escaped through a window. Now he's gone to live in the wilderness and a small group of people have gathered around him. People who also found Saul against them or were just disenfranchised from society. And then Saul began to hear where David was. It says he heard that David was in an area called the Rock of the Wild Goats. And Saul got mounted 3,000 men, 3,000 of the most incredible warriors of the day to go and attack David. And they went to the area of the Rock of the Wild Goats. And if you were in that area of Israel today, you would walk and see a, a mountainous area that just caves are everywhere. It's just filled with caves. And so David and his men are hiding in one of the caves and they're going from cave to cave, searching for him to kill him. In the midst of all this, Saul has to go to the bathroom. Now, I know that is true. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word that's used there doesn't mean he's going number one, he's going number two. That's as graphic as I'm going to get, but, but you got to catch that. Now, if you're the king, you don't bring in a bunch of people to watch you do it. So what happens is Saul goes into a particular cave that is one of the thousands of caves in this mountainside, but it happens to be the cave that David and his men are in. He comes walking in and you can imagine them see the seven foot warrior coming with the light behind him and they're backing up thinking they're caught and they're waiting any minute for the rest of the soldiers to come with the king. But no, they don't. He walks in all alone. He starts to undress because he had to lay his robe at his feet and he puts himself in a particular position. I want to tell you that had to be the funniest thing ever. David has been probably, oh, we're caught. oh my gosh, look what Saul's doing. Oh, and they're like, I, I bet money they're trying not to laugh. And, I, and then the men look at David and say, God gave him into your hands. And, then, and the, 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 the translation is, look how exposed he is. David, this is easy. You don't even have to stab him. You can sneak up behind him and go, ha, and he'll die. You know, isn't that funny? I mean, I love God's sense of humor. And David sneaks up on him and cuts off a piece of his robe and sneaks back. Now, why would he do that? He, he, he showed his men how, 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 how sneaky he was, how stealthy he was. He showed how he could move in the midst of that situation, cut off the robe and sneak back, and Saul wouldn't even know. He's getting ready to mock Saul. He's already been told, look what God's just... And as he cuts the robe off and makes his way back, look what it says in 1 Samuel 20. Four, verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. The word bothered is the word to be cut to the heart. He, he, he churned inside that he had done such a thing. Now think about this. This is a man who's against him. This is a man that's attacking him. This is a man who's cursed him and trying to wrongfully take his life. And, and wouldn't you think, well, it'd be okay to go and take him hostage or to kill him on the spot and have him done away with. But what does he do instead? He just does a, a little bit of mocking. And as he mocks him, he says, oh, how could I be that way? His heart is so sensitive towards God, he thought, I can't do that to somebody else. Verse six says, so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. 
And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. We're told that David was a man with the heart after God. Well, now you see the heart after God. You see someone who's acting as a child of God. And he says, I can't do that. I, I can't mock my enemy. I can't attack my enemy. I can't wish the worst for my enemy. Why? Because I need to love and I need to pray for. I need to bless and not curse. And in doing so, David was actually stronger than Saul and took control of the situation. Saul would get finished with what he was doing and go outside, and then David would go out after Saul had gone down a ways and cry out to him, Saul, Saul, I had an opportunity to kill you today, and I didn't. And, and Saul, realizing what happened, yelled, is that you, David? And, and he said, yes, it is. And he said, why are you listening to people that are saying, I'm not for you? Look, I had this chance. I didn't do it. I won't do it. And Saul says some interesting things if you look down at verse 17. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. Which one are we? Which one am I? And which one are you? Saul said, I, I gotta be honest, you're more righteous than I am. I mean, look who I am. Look what I was trying to, you're way more righteous than me. And you know what? People can't miss it. Not only will your enemy notice, everybody else will notice. And you and I need to be people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and who love instead of hate, who give instead of take, who bless those who persecute. And when we do that, we become so close to Jesus, it's incredible. The heart of God begins to beat within us, and we rise up and are not pushed down, and we have victory. And by the way, let me say this, because I didn't say this last hour, and I sure wished I would have. You break not only a cycle of violence, there's some of us, or some of you, that you need to stop it within your family. By not being that kind of person, you're not going to hand it on to your kids and your grandkids. You're going you're to find yourself putting an end to this kind of action and lifestyle. And God is going to bless that. God is going to bless it. And, and God is telling us some amazing truths in a world that need to hear it. If I... Uh, I were to ask you this question, what is your all-time favorite movie? Well, I can tell you that the one I'm about to show a scene from is either my all-time favorite or one of my top three. It's called Les Mis with Liam Neeson. And uh, the movie is an amazing portrayal of the book by Victor Hugo, uh, where what happens is you have two characters. One is Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean is a man who's come to know grace. And in knowing grace, he lives a life of grace. The other is an inspector. And he is a man of law, both personally and with every area of his life. And by being a man only of law, he doesn't know grace and mercy. And the whole idea of the book and the movie is to bring down the outcome of how people live like this. The scene I'm about to show you, Jean Valjean has just gotten out of prison. He was in prison for stealing a loaf of bread just to, just to be able to eat. And yet he was sentenced to hard labor. It almost killed him. Very few people survived. They branded him with a number and gave him a number instead of a name. They worked him hard. And when he got out of prison, he was warned if he did even one more thing, he would be thrown in the rest of his life. But no one will take him in. No one will give him a job. No one will give him a break. He's angry. He's mad. He's dirty. And he's embittered. He wants justice and he wants revenge. And, and in the midst of it, people are always holding him at arm's length. Then a priest sees him. And the priest invites him into his home to eat. Not just gives him food, invites him into his home. And he shares about the love of God. And John Valjean mocks him. 
And late into the night hours, he gets up in the middle of the night to steal the priest's silver. And as he's stealing it, he makes too much noise and the priest comes in and he violently hits him and knocks him to the ground and knocks him out. He flees with the silver and then the next day he's caught. He's being brought back to the priest and when the priest says, this man stole from me and assaulted me, now he'll be cast in prison the rest of his life. Watch what happens. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam, you know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And it totally changes and transforms him. He goes and becomes a man who cares for others. He goes and starts finding his life prospering. He, he goes and starts loving people who aren't going to get love and rescuing them. He stands for those who are unjustly treated. But here's the thing. He's a man of mercy and grace. His life becomes incredible. If he had hung on to hatred, hung on to the cruelty, let the bitterness overtake him then what would have happened is he would have always been a prisoner and ended up in prison. But when he embraced love and he embraced God's mercy and grace and became a new man with a new heart, he began to live the abundant life that Jesus tells us about. Grace and mercy. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came, he did not come according to the law, but he came in grace and in truth. The Bible tells us when he was suffered, he did not threaten. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself into the hands of the one who he knew, his father. He came to love you and he came to love me. And then he calls for us to catch the incredible joy and victory of living a life like this. It is the greatest life you could ever live. Today, today, if there's somebody who's wronged you, forgive. Today, if there's someone who's hurt you, choose to love. Today, understand that you were bought with the price. As that priest held that silver and said, now I bought your soul, guess what? God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die upon a cross. In the book of Romans, it said, he died for you when you were at your worst. He died for me when I could not have been more undeserving. 
And so at the worst moment of your life, think who you were, and I'll tell you how God feels about you. He loves you. And he wants your life to be a life of love and freedom and joy. He wants you to be someone who rises above and is a victor, not a victim, and a conqueror, not conquered. He wants you to be someone who knows what it's like to be an agent of transformation. Because just in this movie, as someone else is embraced into the grace of God, he goes out and offers it to others. And life after life after life is better. Why? Because it's the greatest life you could ever live. And this isn't just some words that we throw out. This is how to live in a way that is incredible. And it's real words and real truth for a real world. And it's a truth that sets you free. When he died on the cross, he died for you. Notice that Jesus, what he did, was very different than what you and I would do. At least me. I got to tell you, I'm glad that I'm not the Messiah. I think everybody here is. Because you know what? If I'd been hanging on that cross and they were mocking me, I would have got down and smacked them around and got back up. (laughs) And you know, I don't know that I would have said these words. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Just forgive them. Do you know those words weren't just for the people at the cross that day? It was for you and me. I hope you've embraced his love. I hope you've embraced his life. And I want to ask you right now, is this who you are? If not, we're about to go to a time of prayer. And if you would like to give your life to Christ, if you would like to actually actually come to know him and his love, if you would like for him to come and forgive you and cleanse you and make you new and alive, If you would like him to give you power, because the Lord comes, he not only forgives and cleanses you, he draws you close to himself and gives you a power to live these kind of life. If you want that, he wants it for you. The question is, are you ready? Maybe today you're somebody who at one time used to live with him and for him. He wants you to come back. Jesus said these words. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone would open up to me, I would come into him. And I would share deep intimacy with you. And we would share life together. God's great desires that you would open up. How do you do that? The Bible says you call on the name of the Lord. He's knocking on the door. He's asking to come in. And today, if you want that, what you need to do is say, come in, Lord, come in. Right now, we're going to go to a time of prayer. And if you've never given your life to Christ in the middle of this prayer time, I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to pray a prayer with me where you say yes to him and open up to him. And and I'll say the words and you think about them and you just say them with me. And what you're going to be saying is I want the love. I want the life. I want the, 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 the cleansing. I want your power. I want to be with you. And he wants it for you. But the question is, are you ready to say yes? Today, maybe you're here and you're, a, again, a Christian who needs to come back to him. Maybe you're not sure why you're far away or maybe you know, but I can tell you this. He wants you back. He wants you back. He doesn't want you to try to earn it. He just wants you to come back to him. And so I'm going to ask you today just to say yes and come back. That's the first step. We'll tell you the next one, but I'm going to ask you to take the first one. It's just to say yes to him. Let's pray. Father, I know, I know that you want us to be a people of love, a people of good, people of peace and joy. So God, help us to understand how to love in a world that very often only knows hate, how to overcome evil with good, how to live in your peace and joy no matter what happens around us. And God, may we be people who are righteous like that. And may we do it because, Lord, you want it for us. And may we do it to your glory. So God, I pray right now that you would begin to pour your love in this room. Father, I pray for 
I pray for wives that may be here that are angry with their husbands. They feel like they're not noticed, they're not cared for, they're not cherished. And it just seems it gets worse and worse every day. They just aren't sure how much more they can take. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts right now. I pray, Lord, for, for husbands that are here that aren't cherishing their wives, aren't loving, and they feel like because they're not being treated fairly. God, may they take the focus off themselves and put it upon you. And may you transform their hearts and lives and families. I pray for a parent here today that's angry with their kids. They feel like they've not been appreciated. They've been let down. They can't believe some of the things going on. I pray for a blended family here today, Lord, that needs to find love. And it can be there for them, God. I pray it's going to come. So I pray, Lord, for those who are hurt, for those who are wounded. I pray something incredible and miraculous is about to happen in their healing. I pray for those who feel like their friends haven't been there for them. God, I pray for those who just feel like life didn't go the way they wanted to. But now it's time to embrace your life and to let go of the one that they thought would be good. So God, we ask for your spirit to move and touch. I pray, Lord God, right now for anybody who's here who needs to commit their life to you or recommit. I ask that your spirit begin to move in this room. May your spirit touch them. May they sense inside that today is their day. May God, I pray, them. may they come aware, really come aware of, of your love and the fact that this could be a day of change, a day of newness. I pray that they can just now want it. It's mounting up within them. And I pray they're going to say yes. I want to ask that we keep praying. If you're right with God, would you pray for anybody around you who needs to make this decision? Really, really pray for them right now. But I'm about to go to that time of prayer where I'm going to pray and ask you to pray it with me where you would say yes to the Lord. He loves you. He wants you. This could be a day like you'll never imagine. For some, it's to come back. And right now, if you want this, I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to whisper this prayer with me. Just say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurt, to free me from my fear, to make me alive, to make me new, to make me yours. And I say, yes, I want this and I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be who you created me to be and to live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God if you prayed that prayer today. If you